Guys, uh, good morning to you. It's a uh, it's a great privilege to to meet with you all every Thursday morning during the year, the school year, and study the Bible. Um, I really commend you for your steady uh, devotion to studying the Book of Acts this year. I hope that you've gained uh, as much as I have, and I certainly have. I mean, as you all know, so many of you teach in various places. Teacher is the one who always gets the most out of it, uh, and that's been true with me. It's been a great privilege to study the, the book of Acts again. Um, we've, we've thanked Michael Varner and Robert Sutton, but I, I think we, we need to thank some other people. Uh, we've already thanked our kitchen staff before, but uh, they help us every Thursday morning by putting our food out for us, and they do it so cheerfully. And then there's some other staff at Second Presbyterian who work hard, the communications department, our housekeeping staff get these tables set up every uh, Wednesday night and they take them down uh, every Thursday morning and clean up for us. Uh, and then our um, facilities staff make sure the temperature is somewhere close to right in here. And then our administrative staff, uh, Rachel Brannigan supports the Amen ministry. Uh, she's Michael uh, Gatliff's administrative assistant and then my administrative assistant, Executive Assistant Marsha Smith makes up these uh, overheads and these puts these outlines out for us uh, every week. So there are lots of staff people behind the scenes who are doing work. And then we've got this whole team of people, and you know most of them. You recognize them because they do the greeting and the announcements, and they help us with various things. But the Amen leadership team who governs this whole thing and who are actively involved in this, Brian Nern, Carl White, Dan Patterson, and Dan is the one who makes the overheads click on time or not on time. Uh, Dan's the one who does that. Uh, and that's difficult to do when you're trying to listen to the Bible study and you know at the same time and, and click it. Uh, Dan Whipple, Don Riley, Fred Schaefer, who moderates and heads this thing up every Thursday morning. Gordon Thompson, Harold Ware, Jay Good, Jerry Harmon, Jimmy Edwards, John Coakley, John Roberts, Lon Magnus, Matt's Mac, Max Metzger, Mike Gatliff, and, and, of course, uh, the ones I've mentioned, Robert Sutton and Michael Varner. Jim Williams, sitting right here, takes care of our stage setting and our sound. So there are lots of people involved. Let's just give them all a big hand of gratitude. And any time a, a list like that is attempted, you always leave somebody out, and I want to express my apologies already because I know there's some others that I, I didn't mention. Uh, who are regularly involved and really help us out. But thank you so much. Uh, it's just speaking as a teacher, and you all know this in your own, many of you in your teaching ministries, when you can just walk in the room, uh, grab a few grapefruit, drink a <laughs> cup of orange juice, and, and walk up and teach, and everything is, is done by these fine leaders. It, it's a great blessing. Well, we're in Acts 28, and we're at the end of our study of Acts this week. Let me encourage you to take in this summer sessions. Uh, I noticed there's some outstanding speakers this summer, and so you'll be missing something if you can't make it on the third Thursday night. Next fall, we're going to begin our study of the preaching of Jesus. We're going to look at his sermons, particularly the five sermons in Matthew. Now think about those sermons. In, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you get the Sermon on the Mount, which is a major teaching on, on Christian ethics. And our ethics are distinctive, and it's going to involve business ethics and how you live your life, and certainly even how you live your life ethically in your homes 
and in leadership in the community. And spiritual disciplines are in the, the, the Sermon on the Mount and many other things. And then uh, our mission in life. What is your purpose in life? We come to Matthew 10 and we get a sermon on mission. What is your worldview? And how do you develop a worldview? What is a Christian worldview? Well, we've got a sermon on uh, the kingdom uh, through the teaching of the parables in Matthew 13. And then what about your relationships? And what do you do when your friends are really misbehaving badly? Or what should your friends do when you're misbehaving badly? And how do you live this out? Uh, And how do you forgive someone who's just absolutely tried to destroy you? How do you do that? Well, Jesus taught on this in Matthew 18. And then what about the end of time? You know, we studied Revelation some years ago, but there's this wonderful little book of Revelation in one chapter. Uh, You know, in in Matthew 24, Jesus teaches about the end of time. In Matthew 24, we get a sermon on the eschaton. And there are some difficult things to understand there, just as there are in the book of Revelation. But you can see that we're really studying the scope of what it means to be a Christian disciple through the sermons of Jesus next year. Something else that we're talking about behind the scenes is how we can also make amen available to those who want a more rigorous one- or two-year discipleship program. And uh, early this summer, we'll be trying to uh, set that up so that we can have kind of some amen uh, <laughs> who are on a, a, a real uh, rigorous track of discipleship who, who would also join us at least for the, the year or two who want to be in a more intensive discipleship track. We're working on that this summer. It's not available this fall. We'll hit it the next fall, but we'd love to be able to do it this fall. So those are some of the things coming on this summer and the fall. We encourage you to keep your head in the game. I think there are a lot of good things ahead of us. Well, let's turn to Acts 28, 11 through 31. We come to the end of Luke's account, not the end of Paul's life yet, because even though he ends up in prison here, you will remember that we, from various pieces of evidence, both in the Bible and outside the Bible, from early testimony, uh, we believe that Paul was released from prison, this imprisonment, this household imprisonment. Furthermore, it seems that he likely got to Spain, as he told the Romans three years before this, that he wanted to do, and then was imprisoned after that and lost his life after his second Roman imprisonment. So Luke's account takes us up through the, or into the first imprisonment of the Apostle Paul in Rome. And uh, it's a wonderful way in which Luke concludes, leaving us some mighty lessons. Uh, Some of you know that Paul is probably my, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, my favorite character in the New Testament. You know, there are the apostles' shields. All the apostles have a traditional shield that says something about them. And you know the apostles' shield, Apostle Paul's shield, uh, has an an open Bible and a, a sword. Uh, spiritus gladius, which is the sword of the spirit. And, of course, the sword also represents the sword by which uh, he was beheaded himself for his uh, ministry. And uh, that's the only shield I've got at my my own house, uh, back in my study. Uh, Paul is just a marvelous example for us. And uh, uh, so it's it's been deeply moving just to walk with him uh, during these uh, months together with you studying his life and ministry, his attitudes, the way he approached uh, the gospel and so on. Well, let's come to the conclusion then here in verse 11 of chapter 28, and we'll read all the way through the end of the chapter. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. 
putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed." lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Okay, I want us to simply learn from the Apostle Paul uh, what all of us are to be engaged in because the Apostle said, imitate me, follow me, do as I do. Think these thoughts after me because if you do, you will be following Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing for any man to be able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me and you'll meet Jesus. That's exactly what Paul was saying to his followers. I believe he's still saying it today. So let's follow him. Let's see what made him tick. Let's see what was on his heart. And then let's look at how we can put this into practice in our own day. First of all, I want us to notice in verses 11 through 15, Paul's relationship to the broader church. And we learn here we have a fellowship to enjoy. Paul enjoyed the fellowship of the saints. Paul needed the fellowship of the saints. 
Paul is one of the boldest, most courageous uh, individuals I've ever met on the page of any book. And yet Paul needs fellowship. And you see the same thing with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the most courageous, is the most faithful, uh, is the most truthful of any person who ever lived. And he needed and wanted his brothers. Now, his brothers let him down, but he always looked to them, even in his deepest passionate moment in Gethsemane. Uh, as, lo as long as they were awake, which wasn't very long, uh, he was in prayer fellowship with them. And when they would fall asleep, he would be by himself. And, of course, they abandoned him at the cross. But when Jesus was raised, where did he go? He goes to the fellowship of believers. He doesn't, first of all, go to the Roman authorities and show his resurrected body. He, first of all, goes to his people, his brothers and sisters. You find the same instinct in Paul. You'll find the same instinct with anybody who is effectively serving Christ in the world. They connect with other people who are doing the same. And unlike Jesus, we're sinners. And so we need the correction of the brothers as well as the encouragement of the brothers. Now let's look at the Apostle Paul's case. And first of all, you'll notice these brothers take him in. We take each other in. We were invited, verse 14, to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. But he stayed with them seven days. They took him in. And you'll find that Jesus speaks about how uh, we take Jesus in when we take the poorest and the least among the brothers of Christ in. When a brother is in Christ, it makes no difference about his racial background, it makes no difference about his cultural background, his national identity, it makes no difference about his age or his socioeconomic status. He is a brother and we take him in. Hospitality is a really important biblical virtue. And I think probably Americans need to work on it. In other parts of the world, this idea is really embedded more into the idea of the church and even the culture. But we take each other in and care for each other in need. So when someone claims to be a brother has a credible profession of faith, and they are in need, now we're in need. And you see this from Acts uh, chapters 2 and 4 in the earliest founding of the New Testament church. There was no unmet need among them in, in chapter 4. Think about that. They all sold their possessions. They liquidated their properties in order that the family would have what they need, food and clothing and shelter and water. And that must be true today. We deny the gospel if we're holding on to some assets and we've got brothers and sisters who are in need and we're not seeking to meet their need. We've got brothers and sisters all over the world, uh, some of them in dire poverty. We must be seeking to meet them through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We take each other in. And Paul knew that and Paul benefited from it. Paul expected it. Paul needed it. Secondly, in verse 15, you'll see that we lift each other up. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. That is about 35 or 40 miles south of Rome. They got the word ahead of time. That's because the brothers who had met Paul earlier on Paul's journey to Rome had gone ahead of Paul and told the brothers there, come on down here and meet the apostle. So they were meeting him because the word went out that he was there. These brothers were gathering around him. We can't function on our own. We can't function without the brothers. I guess it's one reason that we always encourage uh, the folks in Amen to, to look for a small group. I know some of you have uh, small groups outside of Amen ministry. That's fine. 
But if you don't have a small group of men, someone that you can talk to on a regular basis about your life, your spiritual life, your family life, your ethical life in the workplace, your community service, your view of the world and your engagement in it, all these things that are important to you as a man. If you don't have somebody to talk to about that, you're really just cutting off part of the gospel ministry that's intended for you. That's the reason we encourage you to get into small groups. And Don Riley and some other guys offer to do this for us every fall. And if you haven't been doing it, when you come back next fall, come with the anticipation of linking up with some brothers so that you can have regular conversations and build those relationships because we lift each other up this way. Uh, I remember uh, how this, how this, this works when, when uh, my, my uh, second son that I told you about uh, was uh, in the Marines uh, and I remember his first trip to Iraq, uh, his first tour of duty, and they went uh, through Europe. And on the way to Europe, they left the coast of Carolina to fly to Bangor, Maine. That was their first stop. And these, I mean, I used to be a, a steel salesman, and I, I actually made calls in Bangor, Maine. Can you believe it? There are some pretty big steel customers up there. And so Bangor, Maine has always been kind of a special place to me, but it was really special because when when Ben and his fellow uh, Marines landed in Bangor just to refuel, there was a huge crowd of Bangorians, <laughs> maniacs, who were at the airport. They know the schedule of every military aircraft that comes in there, and they just give them a standing ovation when those guys get off the plane. Well, I love Bangor a whole lot more than I used to. Uh, there's people who just recognize how they can lift somebody up. Listen, that's what the church is for. If you're going to church and you're not lifting somebody up, you're wasting your time. Now, we're supposed to be worshiping God. That's the first thing we do. But the second thing we do when we go to church, we go with the intention of lifting somebody up. Now, sometimes you're down and your intention is, I want to get lifted up at church. And that should happen too. Uh, And Paul was receiving that. But these brothers were looking for a brother to lift up. And boy, did they ever do it. Because we're told here uh, that... Paul was greatly encouraged. But we lift each other up. Uh, Paul was in a chain gang. But when he came in his chain gang to these brothers, they completely transformed his experience. As he said later, you can chain me, but you can't chain the gospel. And the apostle Paul was lifted up by those brothers to realize with all of his chains and all of his guards... He was the apostle of the heart set free. And those brothers reminded him of it. Now, thirdly, in 15b, we see that we thrust each other out. On seeing them, the scriptures say, Paul thanked God and he took courage. Paul had courage, but he took more courage. Where did he get his courage? From his brothers. Actually, he got it from the Lord, but it was mediated through the brothers. And God works through the brothers to... Give us courage. So you ought to go to church. You ought to go to Amen Bible study. You ought to to expect to take some courage out of here. And when you go out to serve in the world, you got more courage than when you came in here. That's what the fellowship ought to do to every one of us. And we ought to be giving courage to each other. Now, how do we do that? I'd like to just mention a few things that we remind each other of that gives us courage. And I have a feeling this is exactly what they were doing with the Apostle Paul. And, of course, it's a little awkward you know, it's, it's kind of like President Obama comes in here this morning and we want to encourage him about, about leading the country 
uh, in, from the White House. Well, what do I know about leading the country from the White House? I'm just a little peon. How can I possibly encourage Obama? It's a little, it's a little awkward when the Apostle Paul steps in your house and you're thinking, I should encourage him because usually people like that, what they do is they take over and start encouraging you before you ever get a word in. But indeed, in this case, it was clear, wasn't it? Paul didn't come in wonderful clerical garbs. Uh, he came in chains. And so obviously, they need to encourage their hero and their apostle. Let me suggest some ways in which we do this. First of all, remind each other of God's love, His love for you. How encouraging that is. Just, I mean, we know it. We learned it in the first grade. But to be reminded of it. And every season in life, you need to be reminded that God is still loving you in every season in life. And not only every season in life, but every day. And not only every day, but every minute. It's one of the most important things to remember. And brothers can remind you of this. That just because you screwed up royally doesn't mean that God ceases to be your father. Or Jesus ceases to be your savior or your older brother. So remind each other of God's love. Remind each other of God's truthfulness in the scriptures. Remind each other that you know what? What you believe is true. What you stand for is right. And the acts you're committing are just. And they are necessary because it's God's truth. So we, we're iron sharpening iron. We remind each other that whether something is popular or not, whether it's politically correct or not, it is theologically correct and it's absolute truth. And we keep building each other up on the truth. Thirdly, we remind each other of the power of God in the gospel and by His Spirit. So we encourage each other by saying, hey, look, you feel defeated. Let me remind you of something very important. It doesn't depend upon your great strength. It doesn't depend upon whether you're depressed or not. Here's what it depends upon. God's almighty power. And His power works through His people who trust Him. And you trust Him. So His power is going to work through you. As a matter of fact, Paul said, I boast in my weakness because when I'm weak, He's strong. Because the power of the gospel is best displayed when men are in chains. So we remind each other of the power of the gospel, how it's radically transformed lives and worlds, and how the Holy Spirit can take dust and turn it into a man, and take a broken man and turn him into an apostle. The apostle Paul was a man who killed Christians because they were Christians, and now he's leading murderers to Jesus Christ and faith in Him and eternal salvation. They remind him of 25 years of ministry and how God has blessed and used him by the power of God. They remind him of all this. So he goes into Rome now reminded of some very, very important things and that's what we need to do for each other as well. And fourthly, you can remind someone of the promises of God that pertain to them. The promises of God. Let me just give you one. I will be with you to the end of the age. He said that to his disciples in Matthew 28. I will be with you. What more do you need, brothers? He is with you. And if He is all-powerful and He is with you and you belong to Him, you'd be in good shape. And so you see how we build each other up. That's what was happening to the apostle when he stopped off in these little taverns with brothers who would meet him in the back room. That's what was going on. Amazing. And it's very encouraging because when Paul gets to Rome, you just watch him. (laughs) This man's on fire. And I just want to say, I'm looking forward to meeting some of these brothers when we get home, guys, because... Uh, I just want to know exactly what they said to the Apostle Paul. Whatever they said, man, that was some half-time locker room speech. I'm telling you what. He came out second half uh, roaring.
So we have a fellowship to enjoy. Let's be sure that we're enjoying it, depending upon it, humanly speaking, and that we're also participating in it and giving encouragement to each other. It's amazing how you can multiply your personal ministry through other people simply by encouraging them. And some of you are quite expert at this. You don't get credit for the outcome. But God knows how He is working, and He's working through you who have cultivated the gift of encouragement. It's amazing how you can, you can start a whole movement through encouraging people. That's what these brothers did. Now, Roman numeral 2. We come to verses 16 through 22, and we see that here clearly Paul knew what he had to do. We have a job to do. We need to get this from the Apostle Paul. He knew what his job was, and he knew that it was his job. And uh, when you're in tough times or you're getting opposition, sometimes you can kind of lose sight of what the heck you're here for. And Paul never lost sight of it. That statement that he made in Acts 20, 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me if I just may finish the task of testifying to the, to the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that statement defines his life and takes him right through to the end. He never forgot what his job was. And we must never forget what our job is. And that is to worship God through every aspect of our lives and making disciples of all nations. That's our job. No matter what your occupation is, your calling is that. Paul never forgot it. Now, first of all, notice in verse 16, he didn't forget it regardless of the circumstances. We have a job to do in every circumstance. You might say, you know what? When you get shipwrecked and bitten by a big snake and you're in chains and you're walking 150 miles from the coast of Rome, you probably have an excuse to think, I just need a break, you know? No, sir. Even on vacation, you've always got a job to do. Everywhere. Uh, When you're sleeping at night, honestly, God's working through your dreams. I mean, you just, you put your head in the pillow and you pray, Lord, keep my mind and my heart in Christ throughout the night. I mean, it's just in Him all the time. And the Apostle Paul does it in every circumstance. And here we see him. Uh, it says, when he came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. Boy, that'll really screw up your ministry, won't it? You're a preacher, an evangelist, and here you are. you got one sloppy guard you know, who's chained to you hand-to-hand and foot-to-foot on four-hour rotations. And you can't get out. You're stuck. What you going to do? Evangelize a sloppy guard, idiot. Of course, that's what you do. You got one right there. He's chained to you. The congregation can't get away. No matter how bad your Sunday school lesson is, he's chained to you. He's got to listen. Hey, you got him. All right. You get it? Paul's on duty. What do we know from Philippians chapter 1? He led the palace guard to the Lord Jesus Christ. These were Caesar's guards who were watching Paul on these shifts. And Paul took it as a wonderful evangelistic opportunity. As a matter of fact, in Philippians 1, Paul says, I'm convinced this is what God was up to. Look what he did. We're reaching the inside of Caesar's household. Now, we did it from the basement, but we're reaching Caesar's household. And you know what? It's often how the gospel gets to our friends through the basement. Now, Paul wasn't actually in the basement. He was under house 
guard. But he was in a low place. And it was from there he was reaching the servants of the emperor. And pretty soon, of course, we know the emperor himself, uh, about 300 years later, comes to Christ. Just keep, you just keep working on him. You just work your way up. <laughs> you don't work your way down. You work your way up. You just reach the ones who have the clearest need, the ones who are chained to you, the ones who can't get away, lead them to Christ, and pretty soon you have a movement on your hands. That's exactly what he was doing. The great John Bunyan in the 17th century, you know, we, we enjoy so much Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, you really just have to read it. Uh, and if you have read it, like I have, I was just reminded, thinking about this, I need to read that again. It's been a while since I've read it. It's an allegory. It's a wonderful allegory of the gospel. And, uh, you know, uh, a Christian uh, starts off with this huge burden on his back. And uh, how is he going to get this burden off his back? And that's the burden of the law and sin. And, uh, and Bunyan takes you all the way through uh, the, the Christian story. And, of course, he ends up in the celestial city. It's a wonderful story. Where did John Bunyan write that? In prison. He was imprisoned for his faith in Jesus Christ for 12 years. He had a wife and four children. They had no means of support besides John Bunyan. John Bunyan is there. They're being impoverished. He writes 12 books in prison. Well, let me tell you something. While Paul was in prison, he wrote four very important books. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. They all got written right there because Paul understood that every circumstance has its opportunity. And sometimes, you know, you guys, uh, you get laid off, which is a, a, a tragic thing. I know it's very, very difficult uh, to be without work. And, you know, it's so scary. And it's also, um, how shall I say, sometimes it just, it really does a job on your head, you know. And because of that, you can begin to pull in and think, well, I don't have a job to do anymore. Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> I remember the longest season I was unemployed, I think it was about three months. It was right after I graduated from seminary. And I, I just said, Lord, I, I want to I be in ministry. But right now, help me to focus on how to use this time best. And I'm telling you, I did some reading during those days that has blessed me even 35 years later. Uh, I read George Whitfield's biography, for one thing, a two-volume biography uh, by Arnold Dalimore, which is a marvelous, inspirational biography. I still think about Whitfield and his great gospel exploits. I've been thinking about it for decades because during that season, God enabled me to see this is what I'm supposed to be doing, further preparation, digging my roots down even more deeply. Be sure that you're not thrown off by your tough times. Be sure you realize there's a purpose I'm to be fulfilling in the gospel story right now, no matter what my circumstances. That's what Paul did. Secondly, notice that he did it in God's way because he was evangelizing, but he did it God's way. What was God's way? In verse 17, we see that he called the local leaders of the Jews. God's way is for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Is that because he likes ethnic Jewish people better than he likes ethnic Roman people? No, it's because the Jews were the church. They were the covenant people. Paul makes a great point of this in his letter to the Romans. He says that, you know, I would, I would myself be accursed if I could lead my people, the, the Jewish people, which are the, the church, the covenant people, to Christ. And he goes on to explain why they're special. 
Because they had the covenant of God. They had the oracles of God. They had the word of God. They had the worship of God. He, he used them historically. The same would be said of the church. We always start with the church. You start with those closest to you. When the gathering demoniac was delivered of his demons, Jesus sent him to preach to his family and closest friends. You always start with those right here close up to you, including the church. That was God's method. It was Paul's method. So he starts with the Jews. And he starts with them with gospel proclamation. And then, of course, wherever Paul goes, he insists on gospel justice and gospel demonstration. That is, we must deal with one another fairly. We must set up... uh, mercy ministries for one another because that is gospel ministry just as much as proclamation is. So that's what the apostle did. He had a job to do in every circumstance to do it in God's way, and that's exactly what he did. Now, thirdly, we have a story to tell. And you pick that up in verse 23. Look at it in the text. Uh, We're told there that when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers from morning till evening. Think about that. Paul was preaching all day long. As long as there was daylight, people could get there and they could get home. Paul was preaching and teaching. He, From morning uh, till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So what is this story he had to tell? Well, first of all, it's a story about the kingdom. He taught them about the kingdom. Now, when you look in the Gospels, that's what Jesus was doing. The kingdom is a concept you see 61 times in the Gospels. You don't see it too much in the epistles because Paul preaches Christ primarily. And when you preach Christ, you are preaching the king of the kingdom. So to preach Christ is to preach the kingdom. But when you look at the material where we're told what Jesus actually preached, his major theme was the kingdom. Now, what would this mean to an Old Testament believer, to a Jew? Paul's preaching to Jews now. He's talking about the kingdom. Well, start off with Genesis 1 and 2, where God establishes man having dominion over the earth. So God, and God on the seventh day enthrones himself as the king of all creation, and we're his vice regents in the kingdom. So the idea of kingdom, although the word is not used, is right there in Genesis 1 and 2 using all the language of an Egyptian king to describe God's rule over the universe. And then where do you go from there? Well, you get into Exodus. And when we studied Exodus, you remember, Moses leads the people of God to Sinai. Why? God there is going to establish His kingdom. In Exodus 19, you get the concept. God pulls them to Sinai to establish them as a nation with just and righteous laws and make of them a kingdom of priests. Remember? And then what happens when you go on through the Old Testament? You get to First and Second Samuel with David and Second Samuel, especially chapter 7, the establishment of the dynasty that shall never pass away. Remember? And so the Jews were very clear that God had announced that there would be a dynasty. David would be the father of the dynasty. And this will be God's strategy for the universe. Of course, you've gone up into the prophets a couple hundred, three hundred years later into Isaiah. And what are we told? For unto us a son is given. Unto us a a child is born, a son is given. And he will establish and uphold the kingdom. So 
the prophecy is about this child of David that's going to come and establish the kingdom. What do you get in Daniel chapter 7? You get this figure who is ruling over the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans uh, who will have a kingdom that covers the entire world and his, his name is Son of Man. And then what do you have that Paul's going to teach about? He's going to say, Jesus said He was the Son of Man. And He's the King who's ruling over all the kingdoms of the world. And He's also the Son of David. So He is the prodigy child of the dynasty of David. And so Paul's teaching all this right out of the Old Testament and saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. He is the kingdom. And then, of course, we're told here what else he teaches about. He teaches about Jesus in the Scriptures. So he's saying, look, let me tell you some more about this Jesus. And you see that Jesus himself was doing this in Luke chapter 24. I've given you some verses there. In John 5, he says that you study the Scriptures because you think that in them uh, you'll have eternal life, but you don't understand the Scriptures because the Scriptures point to me, he says. And even in... Uh, Paul's description of the gospel in Romans chapter 3 and chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians 15. He says the gospel according to the prophets, according to the law. So Paul says everywhere when he preaches the gospel of Christ, it's in accord with what the Old Testament teaches. So Paul was teaching the Jewish people that Jesus was tucked into the Old Testament. He was what the Old Testament was all about. It was somewhat cryptic. Not all that obvious prima facie, but when you really dig down to see, making all the connections with the Old Testament, and you look at the historical event of Jesus Christ just 25 years before, let's see how this Jesus Christ fulfills everything that was foretold in the Old Testament. Paul diligently, day after day, from morning till night, wouldn't you love to have those lectures? From morning till night, day after day, he's showing these... uh, generally biblically literate people, how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. That was his strategy. He starts with the church and shows them how their Bible leads to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our test. And we should be continuing to study the Bible just as you have this year in Acts because that's what we do. That is part of our job. And that is our story that we have to tell. What's your story? Your story is a number of things. Number one... Your story is what Jesus has done for you. And you're an expert in that. It may be a short story, it may be a long story, but it's your story and it's true. Furthermore, you've got the story of the narrative of the Bible and how it goes from creation to fall to redemption, this entire story, and how Jesus is with us all on the way, even before He's incarnate. Then He's incarnated the Virgin Mary and He lives a perfect life. He dies in our place. He's resurrected to everlasting life. He's ascended into heaven, and today is, by the way, Ascension Thursday, 40 days after Easter. Jesus heads for home, and he says before he leaves that he'll be coming back. That's the end of the story, and ushering us into the new heavens and the new earth. There's our story. We tell this story wherever we go, wherever we get opportunity. That's exactly what Paul is doing. Now, fourthly, notice that Paul was aware of his burdens. He had burdens all the time, and so do we. We have a burden to bear. If you're in Christ, if you're, in, if you're on mission, you're going to have burdens to bear. Everybody knows this, whether they're Christians or not Christians. 
But as Christians, you have particular burdens to bear. There are gospel burdens that are peculiar to you. Any enterprise, any business you try to start, any profession you're trying to maintain has all kinds of burdens that go with it. Anytime you're trying to accomplish something good, you're going to face all kinds of rubbish that you have to negotiate and navigate through. Well, the gospel also faces us with many challenges, and there are particular gospel burdens. One of them is this. Some people do not believe. Surprise. Some people do not believe. Some were convinced. Think how glorious that was. Now let's just pause for a moment. We already see the burden before Paul starts to try to convince them. Remember, they said to him in this text, well, no one's written us about this situation that you're in with your appeal to Caesar, so you can just tell us about that. But here's what we have heard, that uh, this sect of people called Christians are a real problem. That's Paul's starting point. Now, hang with me, will you? Some of you may think that just because you are a Christian and Christians have a very bad reputation among some of your friends, some of your golfing buddies, some of your customers, some of your business partners, that you may as well just not even try. <laughs> hey, listen, if that were the case, none of you would be Christians. <laughs> if that were the case, Paul would have just shut up and gone home. Just forget it. Just close up shop. Quit the business. Paul's starting point was, we think you guys are a bunch of fruitcakes. Now, present your case. Okay? That's your starting point. You're a fruitcake. Now start. And don't get discouraged. As soon as people actually hear about you, you're a fruitcake. Don't think that someone's going to tell other people about you and your religious convictions, and they're going to speak glowingly of your religious convictions, unless they're Christians. Anytime any non-Christian reports about your religious convictions, you're a fruitcake. Now, if you can only talk to people who have never talked to anybody else who ever knew you, you're going to have a hard time finding anybody to minister to. So just go ahead and start out from your fruitcake starting point. Don't worry about it. Some people will believe. Some people believed here. They changed their mind. There are blessedly some people who change their mind. There are a few people who do, but there are some who do. Those are the ones you're after. God's elect. And God's elect, let me tell you something, they're going to change their mind because God's going to change it. So you just give the word, sow the seeds, God will take care of the soil. The soil's not your problem. The seed's your problem and sowing it. Just sow it. God will take care of the heart. That's His business. And he can turn Paul around. He can certainly turn your friends around. And that's what that was Paul's starting point. But now, here's a burden. Some do not believe. And that's a burden to us because we want everybody to believe. And furthermore, we want everybody to think we're cool. And when they believe, we're cool. When they don't believe, we're fruitcakes. So when someone doesn't believe, it's a burden. It's a real burden. It was a burden to Paul. And it was primarily a burden to Paul because Paul wanted all men to know Jesus Christ and have eternal life. And he could just see them wasting away. He could just see them facing judgment right there when they choose not to believe. It's a tremendous burden uh, to share the gospel and have someone reject it. It's a social burden. It's an emotional burden. 
but it's especially a spiritual burden, and Paul felt it. Notice also in verse 25 that the word actually hardens hearts. That's a burden. Because you want people to come to Christ. You represent the truth of God's Word. And with some who don't believe, the more you share, the harder their hearts get. So you become the instrument no longer of salvation. You become the instrument of judgment. Whoopee! Well, that's fun, isn't it? You cannot be involved in Christian labor without embracing the role of judgment as well as the role of salvation. Gentlemen, if all you're willing to be is a nice guy and a hero in the mind of everybody you're trying to serve, you're not going to serve very well at all. Because when you serve in any environment in this broken world, some will be saved and some will not. And those who are not will actually get harder the more they listen to you. Some of you have this in your family. It's a tremendous burden. And here's what Paul says. Look at verse 25. He explains it. And it needs to be explained. Disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement that the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, here it comes. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. So Paul goes right back to the Bible and he says the fact that you don't believe was foretold by God Himself. And the reason that you don't believe was explained by God Himself. Now I'm not suggesting that every time someone rejects the Gospel we whip out Isaiah 6 and say, let me remind you of something from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, But in your own mind, gentlemen, you need to know this is not superficial business you're involved in with superficial consequences. This is eternal business. It's very heavy. It's very joyful, but it's very heavy in its judgment. This text from Isaiah 6 is the text when Isaiah is being called through his vision of the Lord Adonai high and lifted up in the temple. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and the temple was full of smoke, and the doorposts and the, and the thresholds shook with the presence of God. And God pointed out to Isaiah that he was a very bad sinner. Woe to me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then you remember God grants forgiveness for all Isaiah's sins. He takes, he, as it were, nods to the seraph who gets the coal and singes Isaiah's filthy prophetic lips and says, your sins are forgiven, your transgressions are atoned for. Hallelujah. Then he says... Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah, of course, would be a total fruitcake if he didn't say, Here am I, send me. That's exactly what he said. So Isaiah had seen the glory of God and he experienced the grace of God and he heard the call of God and he answers, Here am I, send me. Then God tells him what his mission is. Go preach to these people until they're as hard as flint because I'm going to judge them. You go preach the gospel, not to dead people, but to wicked people who are going to get worse the more you preach. Now, there's a ministry for you, isn't it? Welcome to the ministry. That was Isaiah's role. Why would Isaiah do such a thing? Because he'd seen the glory of God, experienced the grace of God, and heard the call of God. 
And that's the only reason you're going to do what you're going to do. Because you've seen God. You've experienced Him. You know that He loves and forgives you. You know that He has a calling upon your life. Now, it's important that we keep that text at the end of Isaiah in our minds. And here it is, right before us. It's the most frequently cited Old Testament text in all the New Testament. (laughs) Imagine that. That you have ears, but you can't hear. And furthermore, your ears are going to get harder with what I have to say. Now, why would that be the most frequently quoted text out of the Old Testament in the New Testament? Here's why. New Testament people who know Jesus and have eternal life and are full of joy about it wonders why in the world will not everybody receive this? You've got to be crazy not to receive a free gift of eternal life through the sacrifice of another person. You're a nut. How do you go on in life and ignore this and continue to harden your heart against it? Well, Jesus says, well, let me remind you of something. Paul says, let me remind you of something. That God told us why this is. Because they harden their hearts and the gospel makes their hearts even harder. It's called judicial hardening. This is the context in which the four soils is taught. You remember the parable of the four soils? There are four different types of soil. And only the fourth soil bears fruit. Why did Jesus teach that parable? Because his disciples were wondering, why don't the Pharisees believe this? They're the experts. Why don't the Sadducees believe? They're the ones who have been studying the theology all their lives. Why aren't important people believing this? Why, are, is, it, why is it just the poor and the weak who believe this? And Jesus gives the parable of the four soils to explain what's going on. You have to have a revelation from God. You have to have the blinders taken off. Because by nature, the gospel only hardens our hearts. So don't get discouraged when some don't believe. And so Paul actually tells them what he knows. I, one day I was witnessing to someone who was an unbeliever, and, and uh, I worked with them for a while, and they said, well, you know, that's just your perspective. You know the whole story. That's just the way you see things. I'm happy for you. Do you believe that? I, I just choose not to, not to believe it. And I said to this person, I said to him, here's what the Apostle Paul said about you. He said that in your conscience, you know there's a God and that you are actively in your wickedness suppressing the obvious truth that's in creation and in your conscience. Romans 1, verse 20. Well, that kind of ended the conversation. Uh, But you know what? It kind of normalized our relationship. That person doesn't think that I think it's just a matter of relative truth. That person received the final message from me. And I verbally wiped my, the dust off my feet and went on to the next person. And I gave the final warning. You are actively suppressing the truth through your wickedness. Uh, now, I have not done that with everyone who has rejected the gospel I share, personally or publicly. But there are occasions, and here was one of them, when the one who is ministering the gospel felt led by the Spirit, hopefully, that this needs to be said as a final warning to those who leave. Who knows? Maybe, maybe the person I was talking to will come back. I still talk to him on occasion. And who knows? Maybe some of these did in Paul's day. And then thirdly, uh, not only do we have a burden because some do not believe, the word hardens, but we go on. Go on to the next person. Go on to the Gentiles. Go on outside the church. When you've sought to revive and renew the church, you've shared the gospel with those around you, you've those who are going to believe, believe for now, and others don't believe, go on to the next person. You know, your, your golf foursome, 
doesn't want to hear it anymore, get a new foursome. Why are you playing golf? It should be to advance the gospel. I'm serious. So your, God, your foursome doesn't want to hear anymore. You need a new foursome. You need to cultivate some new relationships. One reason guys in East Memphis don't share the gospel very much is because they're not with non-Christians. Well, guess why you're not with them? You're with the same old hardened non-Christians who don't want to hear it anymore. And you don't take the energy to go out and create some new friendships. Paul went on. He went on. He had work to do. Okay, lastly, we have a world to win. Number one, continually. He lived there two whole years. And he welcomed all who came to him. He showed no favoritism, as we've already seen with the palace guard. Secondly, I made up a word. Catechetically. Now, catechetical actually is a word, but I don't think catechetically is, but it, it ought to be. And maybe Webster will pick it up as a result of this lecture today. It just means teaching, that we, we have a world to win through teaching, through catechizing. Look what Paul does. He teaches about the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach, 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 teach. It's a learning church. It's a doctrinal ministry. We need to teach about Jesus Christ. And thirdly, courageously, with all boldness and without hindrance. Uh, as you know, uh, this past fall, I really got into Paul uh, with some of you here in this room. Went on a trip called the Footsteps of the Apostle Paul, going to some of these key sites. Let me just read my concluding uh, entry in my journal about the Apostle Paul. What we are dealing with here is one of the most remarkable figures in world history. Certainly the most influential Christian who ever lived. He not only wrote 13 books of the New Testament, but he was the champion of the gospel, declaring clearly and defending boldly every cardinal issue of our salvation. He did this at the continual risk of his comfort, his convenience, and his life. He was not only a scholar of the Old Testament, but he systematically explained to his Jewish brethren how Jesus fulfilled every promise of the Old Testament, and how he unquestionably fulfilled the messianic hopes of God's people. At the same time, he brilliantly displayed how the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Jesus fulfilled the deepest longings of the pagan soul. By the power of the Spirit and by the message of the gospel, he destroyed the wisdom of the wise and the power of the mighty. Peter also proclaimed the gospel to Gentiles. But no one ever in 1900 years accomplished what the Apostle Paul did. He not only uh, studied and taught the message of the gospel with scholarly precision, but he constructed and executed the mission of the gospel in a way no one had ever seen and has never seen since. He traveled from one hostile site to another for 25 years, evangelizing rich and poor, male and female, educated and unlearned. He established churches in every major city in Asia Minor and Northern Europe. He never bore arms, never had bodyguards, but by simple determination and faithfulness to the Jesus he believed in, he stood down kings and governors, proconsuls, and chieftains. He suffered mightily for his mission. Shipwrecks, beatings, stonings, whippings, and imprisonments were his common experiences. The mission of the gospel came at a great price to him. He suffered. He agonized. He felt the pain of his beatings and the cold of his prisons and the intense loneliness of his leadership. But every trial became an opportunity to believe the gospel more deeply. Every affliction became the occasion 
to know, live, and praise Jesus Christ more enthusiastically. And every painful discouragement became a platform from which he lectured his students about the all-sufficiency of God's love for those in every circumstance. One cannot object that we mustn't elevate the apostle as our life's example, for he made it clear that if you imitate him, you will also be imitating Jesus Christ. We don't know of a more fiercely faithful disciple Jesus ever had. Paul loved him and pled with us to love him too. Paul faced the end of his life not with stoic resignation, but with joyful, triumphant, and eager anticipation. He was not a hypocrite. He believed what he preached. When he died, he left behind him a changed world, a Western world that would have the gospel for the next 2,000 years. I owe my life and my eternal salvation to the God who raised up a man from Tarsus, a former Pharisee and persecutor of the church, a man who diligently studied, preached, taught, developed disciples, and gave his life that I might hear the good news of Jesus. I can't wait to see him, to express my gratitude, to ask my questions, and to enjoy the warmth and radiance of his friendship for all of eternity. When Paul began his ministry, very few people believed in the legitimacy of this mission to the Gentiles. There were virtually no churches in Asia or Europe. There were many who mightily opposed him. He faced the religious and traditions of people all over the Mediterranean who proudly resisted new ideas, especially religious ones. But today, we see a world that consists of 33% of professing Christians, half of whom probably genuinely believe. The church is on every continent and in almost every country of the world. How did this happen? Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. We should be most amazed at the grace of God who converted a Christian killer to being his apostle to the world. All glory be to Jesus Christ for taking broken men like Paul and broken men like you and me and using us for his everlasting glory. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful record of the Acts of the Apostles and for the privilege we have had of digging in just a little bit to it. We pray, Father, that through our study of these 28 chapters, you will take every single one of us and engraft us tightly into this fellowship of brothers who take this glorious good news of Jesus Christ and take it here and around the world to your everlasting glory. Amen.